Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matišar, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Should we call Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal? And what are the consequences of using such terminology? Are we witnessing genocide in Ukraine? And does Putin talk about Ukrainians in genocidal terms? About this, but also about much more, I talked to Paola Gaeta. She's a professor of international law at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. This podcast was recorded a few weeks ago, but I do believe it's still very timely. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. And if you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. Thank you. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Imagine you haven't been watching the news for almost three months, and I will tell you a story. One country attacked another country under a false pretext. The attackers were able to occupy some territory, but they had to retreat. After that, dozens, hundreds of dead civilians were found, some with their hands tied and with the signs of torture. What would be your reaction to this story? Would it be a massive war crime? Undoubtedly, if you present it like that, of course, it is uh, without hesitation that there is uh, bodies of uh, civilians killed in the street. If this is true, it is a massive war crime. That is one of the few that is expressly regulated in the Geneva Conventions of 1949 as a grave breach of these Geneva Conventions because these conventions were adopted exactly to cover the atrocities that were committed by the Nazi in the occupied territory of Europe, uh, the force of occupation committing massacres in the occupied territories. And this is a, clearly a war crime. As I said, one of the very few that is expressly regulated in treaties and to which um, almost every country is a party. Of course, we are talking about Bucha in Ukraine and the attackers were Russian soldiers. From your experience, and you deal with armed conflicts, violence and human rights. So from your perspective, Can we say what are usually the main reasons why soldiers in wars deliberately attack civilians? Of course, one should ask this question to a criminologist, but uh, in my experience, whenever these kind of uh, massacres are carried out uh, against uh, unarmed civilians, uh, this is a sign of a profound hate against uh, the other. So there is a process whereby the other becomes inhuman because of the propaganda, because of the uh, whatever. Uh, so all, all of a sudden you see everyone as an enemy, as a subspecies of human being. So that's the only explanation that is given by criminologists. It's profound hate that motivates you. And as far as I see also in this conflict, there is some sort of particular hate vis-a-vis the other. Not only the Russians against the Ukrainians, but I, I see also the opposite in a way, you know, where you really hate them. It's tough to talk about it, and I have friends in Ukraine, but I think that it's quite understandable that we see some hate from Ukrainians directed at Russia. I'm not saying that everybody in Russia is responsible for what is going on, but these are Russian soldiers that attack Ukraine. 
What I see that is quite uh, very frustrating from a viewpoint of international law of armed conflict is the kind of war that is fought in Ukraine now is the kind of total war that it is uh, prohibited under international law. But I mean, this is not surprising to me because uh, in a way, once you have a, a such a blatant aggression of a country, a powerful country against a neighbor, because it's the first time, uh, let's say it, uh, that since uh, so the Second World War that we see on European soil, you know, a big power attacking the neighbor, as it's been in history, as we know very well, against Poland and so on and so forth. So you have such a clear, blatant, flagrant violation of the prohibition of using force in international law. So you're not surprised that every other rule is violated as well. I mean, uh, if the most fundamental rule is so blatantly violated uh, in totally this regard of international law. So I really think that it's not surprising that the kind of war that is fought in Ukrainian soil is the total war that international treaties are, on the contrary, banning. Also because there is a sense of, uh, I think, from the Russian side of uh, being untouchable, since they are the big powers sitting in the Security Council with the nuclear power selling us all the energy resources with which we live and we do our industries. I think that there is also a feeling that they are a big power and nobody can touch them. You mentioned the term total war, and you said that waging that kind of war is directly prohibited by international law. Can you please explain to our listeners what total war means and why is it banned? The total war is the ancient idea of war, where when you are at war, you are at war with the whole population of a country. While the modern principles of law of warfare, they based upon the distinction between combatants and civilians. So during war, the only legitimate target is someone who is fighting against you and which constitute or constitute a military threat. So the modern principle of war is to distinguish always between unarmed civilians, so innocent people, and combatants. And also when combatants surrender or are sick or injured in the field, they shall be not targeted. So there is some idea that you shall bring some humanity in warfare in order to spare as much as possible the lives of innocent people and also of combatants who have laid down their arms because of different reasons, because they have surrendered or because they don't constitute anymore a military threat. But what we see now is that this kind of basic principle seems to be totally, if it is true what I see in the news, because I mean, that's what I'm relying upon is the Western sources of information, because from the Russian side, they deny what is alleged, uh, reported by the Western sources. But if it is true, then it's the blatant violation of very basic principle of the laws of armed conflict. You also worked as the legal assistant to the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Could Bucha be a new Srebrenica? Many people are using the word genocide in relation to what is happening in Ukraine. What about you? Genocide is a complicated term. And I think the reason why it is used frequently is because when you have such massive atrocities, you don't find any other word to describe what's happening. Whenever, as I said, there is a totally disregard of human life and human dignity, basic principle of humanity. So you, you feel that the war crimes is not enough to describe the horrors. So you cannot find any other explanation. 
And I think the word genocide also captures this idea that uh, uh, these kind of atrocities are committed because you want really to destroy a particular national group, in this case, the Ukrainians, because you really wanted to annihilate them. So this is what the word genocide would capture. Because genocide, differently from war crimes, uh, is the series of acts such as murder that are carried out with the particular purpose of destroying a particular group, a national group, an ethnic group, and so on and so forth. And indeed, I must say that this word has been used by some Baltic states uh, retrospectively to describe the crime committed by the Soviets during the occupation of Lithuania, for instance. They have applied the crime of genocide retrospectively because of the brutality of the repression and the brutality of the occupation by the Soviets. So now, whether or not these facts that we are witnessing can be genocide should be based on upon the establishment of whether or not they've been carried out with intention to destroy the Ukrainian nationals or the Ukrainian national group. And only if there is this evidence, then you can speak of genocide. It doesn't matter the size of the killings, because in Srebrenica we have had apparently between 7,000 and 8,000 killing of men and the deportation of the women. And the two together have been considered to be evidence of the genocidal intent uh, by the Bosnian Serbs against the Muslims in Srebrenica. Because it doesn't matter the size of the killings. What matters, because also very few killings can be genocide, because you don't need to destroy a group, actually, to carry out a genocide. What matters that certain criminal acts are accomplished with the intention to destroy the group. So what is necessary is to prove this intention to destroy the group. And if you find evidence of this, you can speak of genocide even facing 400, apparently, killings, because I, I've heard that the numbers of Ocher is around 500, if I'm not wrong. It's enough already to speak of genocide. I'm afraid that we will see similar places as Bucha with many victims. But you also said that when we're considering if something is or isn't a genocide, the number of casualties is not that important. But I suppose that people mostly think that it has to be at least thousands. The number is not important because otherwise you would have the paradox that genocide would be punishable only when the group is already destroyed, which is not what the law requires. No, the law punishes, of course, certain criminal acts, such as killings of members of a group, inflicting suffering, mental and bodily suffering upon members of a group and so on and so forth. But what matters is that these acts are accompanied by the intent to destroy the group that you don't need to attain to speak of genocide. So the numbers do not matter, they really do not matter. I think that the language that Putin uses sometimes to describe the war could be used to make a claim of genocide because he speaks of denazification, which we don't really understand what it means, if it is a regime change or it means to destroy you know, the Ukrainians because they are considered to be Nazis. The problem there is that the genocide do not protect the political groups, but it protects racial, ethnic, religious a national group. But of course, uh, the language that Putin uses seems to indicate that he wants to destroy the Ukrainians because they are Nazi. So it seems to be a political group characterization, but still it is possible to construct 
through these languages genocide if you say that by attacking them, after all, they are is trying to attack the Ukrainian nationality as such. Yes, and plus if Putin and Kremlin don't recognize Ukrainians as a nation, they are in the twisted way suggesting that they are fighting only against some Nazis, and it's a way how to dehumanize Ukrainians. Yeah, the, the way the war is carried out is really in totally disregard of the basic rules of humanitarian law. I think it's a clear indication that there is something more than violating the laws of warfare. There is something more. There is certainly crimes against humanity for sure. That is something that often we forget besides aggression, because there is also the crime of aggression that has been committed. But I don't exclude the possibility that in the future, some courts could adjudicate these crimes as being genocide. As I said, in Lithuania, they have tried some uh, KKB Lithuanian agents for charges of genocide against the Lithuanian nations because of their participation in the Soviet occupation and the killing of the members of the resistance, of the Lithuanian resistance. And this has been classified as genocide in accordance to their own laws. Also, we shall not forget that the definition of genocide, there is an international definition of genocide, which is in the Genocide Convention, but there are also national definitions of genocide that may be not necessarily identical to the international one, and still they can be applied. So there are certain legislation that included the protection of political and social groups in their definitions of genocide. And this is permissible. I mean, it's not that a country cannot define as genocide, you know, the intention to destroy a political group or a social group. Talking about historical analogies, I have to say that when I saw the news about Bucha, that except for Srebrenica, my initial reaction was that it also looks like the My Lai massacre in Vietnam War. In 1968, American soldiers killed more than 300 civilians there. What do you think? I said, I mean, there are those who, who say that it's a question of the stress of the war, the kind of war that is carried out, in particular in Vietnam, as you know, the situation was totally different because of the modalities of, of the Vietnam War with the Viet Cong and the, you know, the the kind of how it was fought on the ground. Here we have a total different situation because you had the confrontation of two armies, you know, the Ukrainians and the Russians, and the Russians entering certain cities in Ukrainian and then massacring the civilians as the occupying force. So I think it's a a bit a different situation because in Vietnam there was not such a power. In my life, it was an attack against the villages uh, that was carried out, again, in violation of the laws of warfare. It was also the 70s, so it was a different moment in history also, and uh, the, I would say, development of international law that, uh, I mean, uh, much has, has, has occurred since then, also because of the war in Vietnam. Here you have a different situation, I would say. I don't know why they do it. As I said, certainly it's a fact that you consider the enemy not worth of any mercy. And you identify the civilians with your enemy. So the enemy, as that's what I said, is the total war concept. For you, the enemy is not anymore the combatant, is not anymore the adversary, is the soldier of the other country, of your enemy. The enemy is the population as such, is all the Ukrainians. And I think because the propaganda of this war is to say, as we have said, that the Ukrainians are all Nazi, and therefore all of them 
shall become a target. I think this is what is the propaganda behind this war that has transformed in a way this war into a total war where you don't distinguish anymore. And also consider that the Ukrainians themselves are resisting against the invasion. So also the civilians are trying to defend themselves. So in the eyes of the Russians, all of them may be a potential target because of the fact that they participate individually uh, to the resistance against invasion. Ukraine has asked the International Criminal Court to gather evidence of alleged war crimes by Russian soldiers in towns near Kiev. What can the ICC do now? How do you gather the evidence amidst ongoing war? Well, that's a difficult question, of course. I think that the fact that certain areas have been, let's say, come again under the control of the Ukrainians, this would facilitate you know, the gathering of evidence because clearly there would be the cooperation of the Ukrainian authorities to allow the ICC, uh, the International Criminal Court uh, staff, to enter the country if, I guess, that they will enter the country at a given point, moment in time to collect evidence by themselves. But I think also something that is very important is that the, also the open source, the documentation of this war through the images of the journalists of the, of the television and the mass media, the satellite images and so on and so forth, the so-called open source images. So they also constitute possible evidence for the investigations. Clearly, this must be checked against the admissibility criteria. So you have to verify that they are reliable source and so on and so forth. And you have analysts to do so. But I think the quantity of information that we have about this conflict and the atrocities that have been committed and collected through the open sources images, it would facilitate the investigations. I was reading in an Italian newspaper that also the so-called responsible of the Ocha massacres has been identified already with the name, email address and telephone number because of the NGOs on the ground that they have tried already to collect the testimony and to identify who was the commander that might be the one responsible for the massacre. I think it's incredible. I think that there is a, a great, let's say, understanding from the population of Ukraine that what they are suffering is mass atrocity crimes and they are documenting them. They are helping out. A thorough investigation takes some time and this is a complicated situation. As we said, the war is ongoing. But if the investigation starts, do you have any estimate of when we can expect some results? Let me distinguish two things. Clearly, we shall not forget that this kind of criminal justice steps have a political cost. We shall not forget it because we are not speaking of an ordinary situation. We are speaking of investigations about allegations of very serious crime, war crimes, crimes against humanity, aggression, whatever, from the side of the Russians, eventually from the side of the Ukrainians, because I've heard of news of also, we have seen images of uh, Ukrainians and killing of shooting. Yes, prisoners of war into the legs. And these are, of course, also crimes from the other side then we can make a political judgment of who is right or who is wrong, but at the level of criminality is criminality, also this kind you know, of activities. But this kind of uh, criminal justice, if it is done in particular at the international level through the International Criminal Court, they have a political cost. Because if you start issuing arrest warrants 
based on evidence collected and uh, accusation that certain war crimes have been committed at a particular level in the Russian army up to the political level, this comes with a political cost. Namely, you discredit politically the Russians more than it is already done. And with whom do you negotiate peace? And this is complicated because it always puts the International Criminal Court into this difficult game between peace and justice that is being proposed in a variety of occasions. Something difficult to be done and to be decided. This explains, for instance, why, to tell you the truth, I mean, in certain situations that is proven difficult when the crimes were committed with the cover or under the um, support of a government still in place. For instance, al-Bashir in Sudan, I mean, I don't want to enter too technically, but what I want to say, whenever there is a government in place that is accused of serious crimes, then there is a political cost if you open investigations, because it means that you ban that government from possible peace talks. Any concrete examples from the past that are related to such a situation? When al-Bashir, and and when it was still in place in Sudan as the head of the Sudanese government and the president of Sudan, has been indicted by the International Criminal Court and an arrest warrant has been issued. Well, the political price that has been paid is that for 10 years, the Africans have said that the ICC had a bias against the Africans because one of the president of a Sudanese government was indicted. And then you have had the story of al-Bashir traveling around in Africa without ever being arrested making of the ICC a mockery at the international level, and only when it has been hosted, it has been surrendered to the ICC. But you couldn't have had the European leaders sitting together with al-Bashir in any peace talk or any international conference, because you would have been arrested otherwise. So what do you do now? In this situation, if you know that Putin is still in place, the government is there, still supported by the Russians, peace may be possible only, only if the Russians agree. What do you do? Do you start indicting them, issuing arrest warrant? This is possible, but then it comes with political consequences. So maybe a way forward for now is not issuing anything, but starting to collect the evidence and identify possible war crimes and perpetrators. This is already done, that this evidence is collected and is kept, and perhaps a mechanism may be established to even to preserve this evidence. I always receive this question. Of course, you can die, and you might have perhaps the possibility to start sending arrest warrants against certain people, low level, middle level, or whatever. But this comes with political consequences that we must be aware of. I'm not saying that it's, uh, it's a price that we shall pay, but we have to take this into account. When this will be done or when is the appropriate moment, but we shall not forget it. So if we say that Putin is a war criminal, it also has consequences, right? When you call someone a war criminal, it means that you don't recognize anymore its political legitimacy to govern a country. I mean, so the Biden declaration so goes in that direction because what you wanted to say, there is the need for regime change there because we cannot really have something to say with this man anymore. But this comes with consequences that we don't know what we could be. So consider the situation in Libya, Gaddafi, when the Security Council referred the situation of, the, of Libya to the International Criminal Court 
at the beginning of the massacres of the population because of the protest, of the civil protest. And the ICC, the International Criminal Court Prosecutor, in the matter of few weeks, issued the arrest warrant against Gaddafi. When he was still in power, but it was declining because of the support of the NATO, in a way, <laughs> in implicit support uh, for the rebels' cause. So this has brought to a regime change all of a sudden, but with which consequences? So it's something that we shall consider. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say that I defend Putin or the government at all. No, it's not what I say. Of course not, not at all. It's, it's just the last of my thought. But I see the complexities of these situations, in particular when there is a government in place, which is a powerful government, with whom you shall negotiate peace. I think that, of course, a possible investigations and criminal prosecutions of these crimes would be possible if Russia is defeated. If Russia is defeated militarily, then, as we have seen in history, criminal trials are facilitated. We have seen it with Nuremberg in post-World War II and the aftermath of other wars. No? When there is a defeat of the government, then you can also pose justice. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.